0: A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, J, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T. Good morning, good morning to you. So it is 7 o'clock a.m. in the morning, Tuesday, May 2nd, 2017. I hope you are well. WC recording at 7 o'clock a.m. in the morning. Why would you be doing that? Well, this is day six of my six-day bachelor experience. The wife and child are happily in California. They come back today. I will be glad to get them back. I have missed them, but I have had a lot of opportunity over the last five days to get things done without running downstairs to change a diaper, get a bottle, extricate the baby from... You know, threshing gears or whatever, and so I thought, hey, this is my last day, I won't say of freedom, but of less challenge, uh, less running up and down the stairs, so why don't I record a podcast episode while I have the chance? So here we are. And I actually have, for the first time in some time, I have some comedy news it's not a lot it's not earth shattering but uh, still, I feel significant and If you've joined the podcast recently, we started uh low f- these forty some seven eight episodes ago uh being about comedy and were for a while before it became about nitpicking or baseball stories and so last year, I won't go into the history of my comedy aspirations. you can listen to earlier podcasts if you don't know that last year um I was I was doing open mics, trying to hit one a week, uh, comedy open mics that, oh, there's good ones, there's bad ones, but a lot of them, there were too many experiences where I sat for two to three hours waiting to be the next to last or last person on stage, and by then nobody was hardly there to wait around anymore, nobody was listening, and that's par for the course. I was not, you know, I'm, I'm not claiming mistreatment there, it's just how things are, but it's not fun. And then I got up at the New Faces contest at Comedy Works for the third or fourth year in a row. had huge expectations. And uh, a fellow comic on the roster that night, uh, who I would consider a friend, was like, hey, man, you look nervous. And maybe he was just trying to psych me out. Maybe he was just trying to be encouraging. Either way, he was right. And nervous? Why nervous? I don't really experience stage fright. There's always a bit of nerves about... Am I going to be able to read this audience? Is the material I have prepared funny? But I don't get stage fright, the whole, I need to go throw up because I'm about to be on stage sort of thing. Um, But I was nervous, and those nerves were... I was putting so much pressure on myself. I expected... I was trying to expect good things at the New Faces contest. I had... I'll back up. The first time I ever did improv was because I'd seen Whose Line Is It Anyway. I'd gone to the Impulse Theater, and this looks like fun. I want to try it. And it was a, the, the first couple years I did improv, it was just a anybody can drop in and do this uh, experience. Class isn't the right term, although we did learn a lot. So fine, class uh, at St. Lucie United Methodist. There was no pressure because if I didn't like it. I didn't have to stay, and I liked it, and I stayed, but it was still, you know... I didn't have to audition. Nobody was going to fire me or cut me. It was e- either in the, uh, you're no longer on the team, or the literal, I've got a knife sense. Um, so, no expectations. A couple years in, I got the chance to audition for Bovine Metropolis and Impulse Theater, and still didn't have a lot of expectations, because I didn't think I'd make it, really. I wanted to. Um, I, I guess I seem to recall the uh, from Saturday morning's audition to Tuesday night's here's what's going on with your audition, Um, a lot of, I wonder what's going on. But it wasn't nearly as bad as when I later auditioned for the On The Spot team at Bovine Metropolis. Then, well, my first audition at Bovine, I got on a team. I got to be part of a team. And so later with On The Spot, I kind of expected I could make it, or I really wanted to, and the waiting was much worse, and three or four times I auditioned and didn't make it were much more disappointing. And Stand-up had kind of become that. When I started, I was just going to do it once. And that one time at the open mic uh, at Enchanted Grounds was so great, It's like, okay, well, let's do it a second time. And even though the second time didn't go well at all, I I had much too ambitious an idea and uh, and didn't come close to pulling it off, it was still like, I want to do more of this. And so put on a show at Solid Grounds and then started up a show at Bovine because if I have my own, if I'm running a show, then I'm guaranteed stage time, but I still... I wasn't thinking, I want to do cruise ships, I want to get on at Comedy Works, you know, be paid to play at Comedy Works. I was just I was just having fun and trying new things and experimenting. And sure, I wanted every time I got up on stage to be good, but I was just having fun. And over the course of the past, not even the past year, because from t- June, uh, maybe July of last year until... Right here in May, I've performed twice. So that's almost a year. So there's been almost a year of nothing. And the year before the year of nothing, I had started to really build up expectations and I had stopped having fun. And so New Faces contest didn't really have fun. And if a comic gets up on stage and doesn't have fun, the audience doesn't have fun. There may be comics out there that... Well, and I've heard of comics, you know, getting on stage, that have the flu. Getting on stage, they've just found out they're getting divorced, whatever, that they can put that in a box, leave the box in the green room, as it were, and still have fun on stage. Or, if they're not having fun, they can they can disguise it enough that the audience doesn't know. But I am, <laughs> I'm not within a light year of that level, and if I'm not having fun, it's hard for the audience to have fun. Uh, if you've ever had the misfortune of being in the audience when a comic is unsure of themselves, it's not a great experience. So... I was like, and and then after the new faces contest, I tried one more open mic, as I recall, and it's like, well, maybe it was the material, so I'll pull out stuff that I know can get lapsed, I've gotten lapsed on before, and I did that at an open mic, and it fell over flat on the floor. I still wasn't having fun, and I was like, okay, enough. Um, whether or not making a point of getting back up on stage would have been a good idea, I don't know, but. I don't need to succeed at comedy. Um, I I got a daytime job. I'm doing all right. And beyond the small business, I have, I have a much more important daytime job, that is, of raising a little boy. So if I don't do comedy, I'm still me. I, I can still own my stage, although I will miss that stage. And so I, for the past <clears throat> almost a year, have had two... Comic experiences And uh, stage experiences And one was uh, Hosting the talent show At Waterstone Very low pressure Just, I don't know 50, 60 people Just 50, maybe 60 people and their kids. It's about the kids. The host is important, but not all that much. And that was kind of fun. Um, but it was you know, first time getting on stage since some very poor experiences. Um, it, was, it was not the best night. And um, I, I had to bring Isaac with me because I had to leave for the event before my wife got home. And so there was a little bit of... Distraction of oh my son is crying in the back or the the wonderful wonderful person who, uh, who volunteered to watch him doesn't know where his bottle is is he, he's he's crying because he's not up on stage with me there's anyway it wasn't horrible but it wasn't great however and I want to give thanks unto God for His timing um, I got to get on stage last Sunday and before I tell you about that roughly. L- well, not even roughly, last August. So I had my summer of comedy not going well, and maybe I'm putting this down, and maybe it's forever, I don't even know. In August, I thought, you know what I miss? Improv. Um, I did improv at St. Luke's for several years, and then I got on a team at Bovine Metropolis, and I was down there uh, either performing or watching performers a couple times a week. I was running Lights and Sound. I was really invested in improv for a couple years. And then um, the last improv thing I did, uh, but one, was I was on a team called Out of the Basement, uh, based out in Westminster, and we did a Thanksgiving week type show uh, 2013, and since then, so almost four years, I've had one uh, chance to be part of a Smile Train improv, and that was uh, the following August, so it's been almost three years, I haven't done any improv, certainly the every week thing. As, yeah, I, I got married, and then I had a kid, so there's been some things going on instead of improv, but I miss it. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun, I, I if I had my wish, the group at St. Luke's would suddenly spring back into existence and be a thing. And who knows, I didn't even look into it. Maybe if I was willing to be in charge of such a group, there might even be interest. I'm not, I've got enough going on, I'm not looking to lead a group, but would love to be a part of one. Even if it was just anybody's welcome, drop in not a lot of performing opportunities like I started with. That would be fine. I just miss doing improv. So I asked around and the group that was recommended to me, it's called Third Kind Improv, they actually meet a short bicycle ride away from where I live on Monday nights, uh, assuming they still have the same schedule they did a year ago. And when I checked in late August, I had missed the auditions uh, by like a week. And they said, we'll have more auditions in January. And that was not what I wanted to hear. It's like, oh, okay, the waiting is the hardest part, but here we go. And then, furthermore, there weren't auditions in January. Uh, So I was like, well, maybe the coming August. I have to wait a year, whatever. So I was hoping for a chance to audition at some point. Now we go back to stand-up. Last Sunday, so nine days ago this morning, um, and the Saturday night service before that, I got the chance to get up on stage at Waterstone, And unlike some previous times where I have shared with you wonderful people the the, uh, recording of what I got to do, um, if you really like the sound of my voice and you'd like to hear the uh, evidence of what I'm speaking of, you can go to waterstonechurch.org and uh, click on the, uh, it it wouldn't be the latest message now because uh, more than a week has passed, but the next to last sermon message, the one titled friendship slash loneliness, I got to kick that off. Uh, kick off the whole Proverbs series, in fact. And what we did, um, w- the idea was, and wasn't even my idea, but they were. They asked if I would uh, take it on, and I was. I'm always honored when Waterstone asks if I will uh, put something together. The idea was, since we're doing Proverbs, what if we put a bunch of proverbs on screen one at a time and had the the congregation guess or tell, you know, whether or not the proverb is actually in the Bible. <clears throat> and uh, they reminded me a couple weeks ago, I was like, hey, we had this idea, it would be coming up next Sunday, are you in? And I said yes, uh, especially if I don't have to do the writing. And they said that's fine, we'll come up with the proverbs. I did contribute a couple of them. Um, but uh, what I did because it was it <sighs> my brain locked up. Um, the powers that be at Waterstone put a fair amount of faith in me, in my ability to find the funny or at least the interesting. And so what they gave me was a list of proverbs and then yes or no, that's in the Bible, which is a fairly stark framework, although that was fine with me. And in fact, I preferred that to, here's your, here's your script, here are the jokes we've written for you, just do them. Um, I don't think they would do that, and I'm glad that they didn't because uh, I, I get to have more fun if I can put my own spin on things. Um, but a thousand different ways to go through that list. And it could have been a, okay, here's, welcome to Waterstone Church. We're going to look at some Proverbs and see if they're in the Bible. Here's the first one. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. What do you think? Is that in the Bible? Let's see. I could have done it like that. I would never do it like that, and they know that, but that's one of the approaches. And I had fun with it, which is the point of this whole, currently 14-minute story. Um, I... I I treated it like a game show. It was like, uh, you know, good morning, Waterstone, and welcome to Is That In The Bible? And I explained the rules and give a thumbs up or a thumbs down, and here's first. And and played with it and, you know, called out, picked out certain people in the audience who were giving the right answer or the wrong answer or just the room as a whole. It's like, you know, a lot of people have no thumbs up or thumbs down. You refuse to commit. Come on, you got to play. Anyway, if you really care, waterstonechurch.org the friendship slash loneliness sermon you can you can hear uh, from the second service how that one went the point what's exciting for me is it was fun and I didn't even really think about it being fun until the following Tuesday so a week ago today when I had breakfast with uh, Pastor Larry and he said you know you look like you were having fun on stage and I was like you're right I was and this may sound stupid wouldn't be the first time something on this podcast has sounded stupid I hadn't really thought about it but I did have fun and there's a part of me that kind of wondered if I was ever going to have fun on stage again and the reason why I'm really thankful and I absolutely see God's timing in this is unbeknownst to me when I was performing the Is That In The Bible sketch uh, nine days ago unbeknownst to me when I was talking to Pastor Larry about it seven days ago last Tuesday night I heard from Third Kind Improv. Hey, we've got auditions May 15th. So Monday night, less than two weeks away, I get to audition for an improv team. And I don't know what's going to happen. And I, my hope is that... <coughs> And I don't know what's going to happen. My hope is that whatever, whether I make it onto the team or not, that I have fun during the audition and I get to yes-and, well, if I don't yes-and anybody else during the audition, I don't deserve to be on the team, but that that I get to yes-and some people, I get to encourage some people, get to have fun for at least a few minutes doing improv again, and God willing, have a chance to be on a team and do improv regularly. and. I I attended, well, I didn't just attend, I filmed a stand-up comedy show Sunday night down at the Bug Theater. And like I used to do when I would film comedy, um, I caught myself thinking about, man, if I get up on stage again, I wonder which set I would do, what jokes I would tell. I wonder how I would put that concept together. And I would like to do more stand-up. I'm okay that I haven't been, and certainly I'm not looking forward to another comic open mic, but that's the thing, is a, a friend of mine, Jeff Cohn is uh, is a comic, and he's being, being paid to, uh, to open for a comic uh, across several shows this coming weekend, very proud of him, um, and he was, he and I talk about comedy every couple of weeks, and he said, somebody said to him that the stage time should always be exciting, should always be fun, if even with the crappy comic open mics, if if you're not excited to get on stage, something's wrong, um, And regardless of whether or not anybody's listening, regardless of whether or not any, any advancement will come. It's stage time, and that should, just on some level, always be a treasure, a treat, a, a gift. And if I can find that place again, I hope I can, because there's jokes I've written that I haven't told, and stories that have happened that I think people would laugh. There's laughs I haven't gotten that I haven't been able to give to people. And so, I do want more. Um, I'm willing to admit that. Because, you know, it's just you listening. And, and you wouldn't go out and tell that to just everybody. So, just between you and me, I do want more. And I'm hoping for more. And I think improv would be... It's not the same as stand-up, but it's it's a very close first cousin, in my opinion. And, and I've missed that, too. So, anyway. Um, what a blessing from God to... Without any work on my part, I did not pursue this opportunity at Watchstone. It came to me as many of the best chances I've had and the best moments I've had doing comedy, um, they've come to me. They weren't ones that I went after, which might be a clue. <laughs> and I've, I'm paying attention. But what a blessing from God that that happened and that that weekend came just less than 48 hours before the audition was announced. Um, I kind of needed that. And so God gives gifts to the people that he loves. And he loves you. And so I hope he's given you a gift this week. If not, well, ask him why. Meanwhile, you are here, hopefully, well, you're here to listen to me. You're here to listen to whatever I have to say, aren't you? That's such a blessing to me. Hopefully it's worth the listen. Why don't we get into the kid? It is time for uh, chapters 4 and 5, I believe. Let's see. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's time for Chapters 4 and 5. Let's see what might go on in Boston in the late 1940s. Chapter 4. The kid hit three home runs in his next game and two in the game after that. There were more autographs, more cheers, more fans, and more people counting numbers. The kid's average was at 350 and climbing. Jason Stiller had figured out how to keep his distance from Bud Triplehorn, and they had not had any conversations. For several weeks there was a quiet peace among the Boston Braves, marked only by more games won than lost. Except for one thundercloud that formed indoors on a rainy afternoon. Because of the team's success, and also because the gentle spring rain was not very conducive to practicing baseball, DG had moved things into the clubhouse, and for most of the afternoon there was card playing, fish storytelling, and the general camaraderie of men together. Near the end of the afternoon, D.G. held a formal meeting about the status of the season, the things the team needed work on, and whatever else was on his mind. Then when he was finished crouching at his players, he brought out a small bag of barley candy. Every man in the room started paying attention. Jason Stiller had learned along with Ted and Phil, his fellow rookies, about the game the manager of the Braves liked to play with his boys at the end of meetings. The rules were pretty simple. Dutch Katan, D.G. called. What's the name of this here team we're all trying so hard to win for? Chewing on the inside of his cheek, Dutch leaned back and made like he was thinking hard. Uh, well, now that'd be the Boston Braves, Deege. Good for you. He pulled a piece of candy from the bag and tossed it to Dutch, then turned to Bill Pickens. And what lead would those self-same Boston Braves call home? Bill was trying to show David Mac McKenzie a card trick, and answered, and the National League, without glancing at his manager. He did look up fast, though, as his candy zipped through the air, and even then, he almost fumbled the catch. A murmur ran around the room, if you caught the candy, it was yours, but if it bounced, it was anybody's. Thus was the game made interesting. Lefty, Babe the number. He was number three, and that number has since been retired. Smart boy. A toss and a catch. Conroy, Phil looked up from where he was sitting next to Jason. Yes, sir. Who invented the curveball? Ah, D.G. turned away. Sammy? Candy Cummings, in 1867. Two pieces for you. To avoid the struggle of having two catches to make, D.G. handed the reward to its recipient. A few catcalls at Phil's expense, and the boys were getting into the game. Jackson, tell me the difference between the pennant playoffs and the World Series. Uh, World Series is best of seven games, playoffs best of five. A toss and a catch. Hey, Squints, get your eyes out of that comic book and tell me why there was no World Series in 1918. Uh, that would have been because of the First World War, Deej. A toss and a catch. Make sure you don't ruin your eyes, Squints, and don't tell me how it comes out. D.G. turned away, admitting, I haven't read that one yet. Laughter. Billy, how many years was there a Federal League? The Braves' first baseman held up a hand while he thought for a moment. Then, two years, 1914 and 1916. And nobody wept when it folded, neither. Take two pieces, Billy, seeing as how you're my favorite first baseman. Seeing as how I'm your only first baseman, he let it go at that and popped both of the barley candies into his mouth. The bag was starting to empty. While he took a gander at how many pieces remained, D.G. kept up with the questions. Mr. Star Pitcher, sitting over there by the door so he can get back home to his wife in a hurry. More laughter. Would you enlighten the group as to where the first professional baseball game of all time was held? Bud grinned and opened his mouth, but the answer wasn't there. He laughed and looked like he was thinking, until a quiet voice from the other side of the room supplied what he needed. Hoboken, New Jersey. DG looked up to see that Jason Stiller had answered his question, and there was some good-natured ribbing in Bud's direction, though some of the veteran players were surprised. It was an unwritten rule with the candy game that rookies could answer a direct question, but otherwise they kept their loose change out of things. But nobody said anything, Jason Stiller being somehow much more than the rookie he was, whether any of them liked it or not. If he had been thinking, the manager of the Braves would have called an end to things then and there, or perhaps made it clear who he wanted to answer his next question, but it had been a long day for Deej as well. What here? Bud jumped on the question. His mental block cleared up with the fire of jealousy. 1846. Now it was the kid who was getting riled. Again, it would have been an excellent time to be done with games. But once again, D.G. wasn't thinking. And the sudden conflict between the two had the whole room listening. What day? Jason got there first. 19th, July. Name of the team? The Knickerbockers. Bud. The other? New York 9? The kid. Nobody moved in the whole room except D.G., who continued to toss candies in the right directions. When Jason missed a catch that passed over his right shoulder, nobody jumped for it. From opposite sides of the room, the air between Jason and Bud crackled. Final score? Bud again. 23 to 7. Now DG was starting to understand things and figured he'd better get finished. Okay, last question. Can anybody tell me anything interesting about that score? That game? Jason looked blank. Bud grinned, having the upper hand at long last. Mind if I take this one, Ked? He looked at his manager. The Neckerbockers lost by 16 runs, even though the game was their idea in the first place, and the New York Nine had to be hired and taught how to play baseball just to give them some competition. Fine. Perfect. Here. D.G. lobbed the bag itself at Triplehorn, having lost count of who got what anyway. I see him, boys. Go home. All of a sudden, he was very tired. The meeting dissolved, and though there were snattered snatches of conversation, nobody really knew whether to congratulate Bud or joke at Stiller or what until Bill Pickens made things worse without thinking, like usual. "'Don't worry, kid,' he clapped Jason's shoulder. "'You can still hit his fastball, can't you?' Most of the players still hanging around saw the look that passed between Jason and Bud Triplehorn, and the kid was glad there was an entire room's space between the two of them. Somebody said, "'Shut up, Pickens,' and some forced laughter followed, and everybody left. Jason was walking out of the stadium, talking to Phil, when Dutch Catan caught up from behind." and was as blunt as usual. What do you think you're doing, Jason? Can I help you, uh, Mr. Katan? Dutch was not one for playing games. Yes, you can, boy. You can drop this how-great-I-art attitude, especially around your teammates. Look, kid, you're a crackerjack hitter, the best we have. This team wouldn't be the same without you. We all know that, and now it's officially acknowledged. And if you develop rivalries with pitchers, that sort of thing is expected, even encouraged. Now they were stopped, all three, just past the exit to the stadium's parking spaces. Gives the team something to watch for, makes the games more interesting. By all means, go make some pitching rivalries. But for crying out loud, Jason, would you do us all a favor and pick a pitcher on another team? Dutch continued walking, making his way to his car, leaving a surprised rookie center fielder and a chastened but thoughtful star hitter behind. That was Mr. Danny Gorman for Quaker Puffed Wheat, ladies and gentlemen, and I must say that if our Mr. Gorman has anything to go by, that cereal just puts the stuffing into a man. The radio announcer pushed the headphones more firmly over his ears and leaned into the microphone. This is still WACE in Wakefield, and I remain Donald Warmack, your announcer and fellow sports enthusiast. And just like I promised before we went on break, we've got a few more minutes here at Waste to talk with our special guest, Mr. Jason Stiller, the man you baseball fans know as the kid. Come up from Boston and the Braves to give us a little chat. Jason, once again, it is marvelous to have you here with WACE today. Why not send out a special hello to the many thousands of your fans that may have just tuned in? Across the board that ran the radio functions, standing by the microphone set up for his interview, Jason gave Donald Warmack a nod and leaned into his task. But his special hello to the many thousands of fans that might have just tuned in didn't actually register on the radio. His mouth moved, but only dead air. Warmack's mic was still in working order. Well, it looks like Jason's gone a little tongue-tied. No, seriously, folks, I think we have a bit of a problem here in Radioland. Bear with us for just a moment and the announcer went on for several more seconds of banal chatter while three technicians worked frantically at fixing the problem. D.G. was watching from outside the studio, and he recognized growing frustration in his star hitter's eyes. Chuckling quietly to himself, the manager of the Braves recalled that Mr. Stiller hadn't really wanted to go on the radio in the first place. Of course, when Robert Germain got what he thought was a good idea into his head... Give it another shot, Jason! Jason first gave the announcer a very long-suffering smile and then spoke into the microphone again. Any chance we're getting somewhere? Womack laughed. I think we, now we are, Jason, yes. Well, I'm still enjoying myself here at the station today, and as usual, I'm happy to say my thanks to anybody listening who shows up to cheer on the Braves. On well, the Braves, certainly, but today I'm more excited than I get, usually just to have you yourself with us, Jason. I've been around for a lot of baseball, seen a lot of games, but when you step up to the plate, it's really something to behold. DG, listening found himself nodding in agreement. The kid was something else, that was for sure. The announcer continued his commendation. I have to admit that I never got to see the great Bambino in action. I've only viewed the movie reels, but I've heard it tell that your grace, your obvious love for the game of baseball, makes people think of the babe himself. Like George, Herman Ruth has come back for a few more games. Less maybe a hundred, hundred fifty pounds, of course. Jason laughed like he was supposed to, although he rolled his eyes at DG when Wormack wasn't looking. Now, we've discussed your progress with the Braves, but I'm a little curious as to just where you came from, Jason. I mean, as has been reported in the dailies, you never played in the minor or bush leagues at all. Just how did you come to be a part of this nation's greatest baseball team? <laughs> I don't know if you're prejudiced or not, Mr. Warmack, but that kind of support we can always use. Actually, it's a little strange how I left Gillett Grove in the state of Iowa to come over the, the very accommodating Massachusetts... Uh, here he stumbled. Massachusetts? Massachusettsians? Warmack laughed. If I had any idea what the answer was, I'd tell you, kid. Uh, Say Bostonians, if you have to use a term. Jason was red-faced and not pleased with himself. Well, as I was saying, the good people of Massachusetts, and especially Boston, have been very kind, especially considering the lack of any professional record they had to look at in the first place. So you never played professionally. Not a game. I don't imagine you just wandered into the Brave Spring training and were hired, though. No, not really. Jason looked up and to the right, thinking about it. Uh, "'I was a pretty fair player, if I do say so myself, "'but until the turn of this year, I never played but on neighborhood "'or what we called garage league teams, you know, like for the local hardware store. "'I actually played for Stucky's Hardware for a couple years. "'Hard to get the talent scouts to show up for games like that?' "'The kid laughed. (laughs) I should think so. "'Oh, I sent letters to every ball club in the major, minor, and bush leagues, "'and I guess finally a letter got through, "'because though I never saw a scout or anybody connected with the Braves "'at any of my garage league games,' This past December, I got a letter from Robert Germain himself asking me to come to spring training. Paid my train fare and everything. That's amazing. And Jason, I've heard that the day you showed up for training, there were a few bumps. Now Jason looked right at his manager, and it was DG's turn to be embarrassed. Well, I hadn't written or phoned to confirm that anybody wanted me to show up, and apparently Mr. Germain didn't tell anyone that I would be there. The only reason Mr. Muldowney, my manager, didn't throw me out on my keister was because there was a locker with my name on it but he did let me cool my heels on the bench all day. DG was waiting for Warmack to get into the five-hits-out-of-seven-pitches story that had already become a Boston legend and was fanning outwards, but apparently the radio interview was close to over. We just have time for one more question, Jason. I doubt it would surprise you to hear that WACE is very much a family station, and for all those families that are listening, the father's just about to go out to play a little catch with their sons. Could you give us just a sense or two about how your own father did you good growing up? The manager of the Braves had just stood, figuring that they'd be leaving shortly. When he heard the question, but heard no answer, he looked back into the studio. Jason Stiller had the strangest look in his eyes. Finally, just as Warmack was about to ask the question again, the kid blinked and stumbled through his answer. Ah, uh, that wasn't a question I was expecting, Mr. Warmack, but I don't know that I have anything to say. Sorry. Uh, uh, sure, Jason, nothing wrong with that. Folks, you've been listening to Donald Wormack on W.A.C.E., and my special guest has been Jason Stiller, the amazing rookie from the Boston Braves. More after this. Commercials began, and Jason made his goodbyes, getting thanked and asked for an autograph by the announcer. If Wormack had found anything strange about the end of the radio interview, he didn't mention it. D.G. and his brave had walked the mile from the train station to the radio station for the morning's interview, They walked back after, and though the older man was trying to make a point with his junior with the walk itself, the kid either hadn't noticed that they'd walked instead of cabbing it or hadn't cared. Either way, he hadn't asked the question DG was ready to answer, but Dennis figured he could always just be blunt if he had to. As they hoofed it down Main Street, Wakefield, in the general direction of the trains, Jason seemed a little preoccupied, but he responded when his manager knocked him in a friendly manager-player way on the left shoulder. Huh? Were you caught by surprise back there, or what? I don't understand. When the guy, what's his name, the announcer, asked you about your dad? Jason looked away. DG wondered and tried a little push. Lord knows my father was the biggest influence that got me into baseball. I figure most players are like that. When there was still no response, he continued. So how about you, huh? Jason spoke clearly and distinctly, obviously not wanting to repeat himself. My father wouldn't know a baseball bat from a hole in the ground, and I don't want to talk about him. Huh. Okay. D.G. figured it was as bad a time as any to bring up his other subject. Wanted to talk to you about something else anyway, Jason. Sure. The kid kept looking at the ground. D.G. tried to think of how he would breach things, but at least it had nothing to do with fathers. When you think of star players, the real legends of a baseball team... Do you think of the guys that get their own baseball cards, the guys who get the best train berths when a team goes on the road, that sort of thing? Yeah. I'd look at a guy's performance first, you know, before I called him a star. Of course. But it's the performance, the game-winning and clutch playing that makes the powers that be call someone a star, give him special treatment. Right. The look he was getting from his player told DG that Jason had no idea where he was going. Now there's a player on the other end of the scale. Any player, really, who's hanging out on a ball club for his very first year. He wanted Jason to supply the answer. Rookies, you mean? Yeah, D.G. was pleased. That's exactly what I mean. Rookies. They almost get overlooked. The smallest berths, the smallest lockers, the worst treatment. Because they're rookies. It isn't fair, but it's how things go. Jason, you're making my point beautifully. Huh? D.G. stopped by a dressmaker's window. Then he stopped looking at his own reflection and actually looked into the shop and hurriedly started walking again. Jason was still laughing when he caught up. "'I said, huh?' "'It's just this, Jason. Some players are rookies. Some players are major stars. "'I don't really think even you can pull off being both.' Finally, Jason understood, by the look on his face, and D.G. let him think about it for a few dozen steps. "'Do you understand what I mean, Jason?' "'Of course,' he said softly. "'No, it's not really fair.' "'I know it ain't fair, but it's how things go. "'I'm not about to lay down the law for you, son.' In this case, I think you should make your own decisions. You're not in trouble, and I certainly ain't thinking of cutting down on your swing time. You've proved yourself amazing behind the plate. In fact, Mr. Stiller, you honestly are the most talented hitter I've ever seen. You've seen a glimpse of star treatment, granted, but given a year or three, I don't know, but you might end up being the greatest baseball player of all time. A good minute of silence passed after that remark. Dennis G. was mulling over how much that admission had just cost him as far as emotions and dreams went, but also he realized how true the statement still was. What Mr. Stiller was thinking about was not indicated or discussed. Finally, D.G. continued the conversation. When you ain't the greatest yet, and you are definitely a rookie until this year is out, come heaven or high water, nothing will change that. Like I said, it's going to be your decision, but I certainly hope you feel like maybe pushing Robert Germain's favors away a little bit, Use that star treatment he's giving you to say no sometimes, like to radio interviews, maybe. The train station hove into view, but there was time before the next ride left. I'm also not saying you need to tell folks to get lost when they ask for your autograph, that you shouldn't wave when people cheer. If Bryce hit a home run and people cheered, he could do all the waving he wanted. If Conroy gets asked for his autograph, nobody's going to mind him giving it. But where the Braves are concerned, if you go around letting the owner treat you in any way rookies aren't to be treated, the team starts taking sides. And then it's not a team anymore. Jason spat into the street. I'm not that fond of Robert Germain. I owe him a great deal, but I don't think much of him. That's up to you, Jason. Just like how much you let him give you life on a platter. Dennis thought twice about what sprang to mind, but went ahead and said it. And another thing, if you maybe show a little humility, take life alongside Bryce and Conroy instead of living it up, you might just get Raven's attention. Even expecting a reaction, D.G. was still surprised. All of a sudden, like a light bulb had gone off in the kid's head, Jason went from half listening, half thinking his own thoughts, to complete and devout attention. What did you just say? I know. You didn't expect me to change my mind on that subject. Maybe I have. Maybe I haven't. But she's a big girl now. She can make her own decisions. And that night we all went out to dinner, after the game with the Senators? Well, I don't know, kid. DG scratched behind his right ear. You looked pretty good together. Almost to himself, he continued. She didn't look happy, but she looked at least human again. Haven't seen that in a while. Remembering himself, the manager of the Braves continued while fishing for his return ticket. Just think about it, and try maybe to be more a part of the team and less of a show-off. Ouch. Call him like I see him, kid. No apologies. Not when you're right, anyway. Jason followed his manager onto the train, and when they had found seats, still had a thoughtful look on his face. How about Kip? Eh? Kip? Kip? Oh, that young punk reporter of yours? Yes. He was going to come with the team to New York tomorrow, but I guess I could tell him no. I really don't have a feel for that, you know? Well, I'm flattered that you think my opinion will help. That's why I asked, Mr. Muldowney. Kid, if you don't start calling me Deej, I'll make you sit out a game until you learn better. As for Kip Jambalaya, or whatever his name is, I guess you're okay if you don't flaunt him. Since he's your age, and according to that first conversation I overheard, you're both more or less rookies trying to help each other. I guess it's okay. If there's a problem, let me know and we'll talk things through. But kid, if Casey O'Malley or Jerome Bertrand wants to do a front-page exclusive, tell him to talk to me, all right? Jason chuckled. You have a deal, Mr. Muldowney. DG cuffed his player upside his head. Watch yourself, boy. Yes, sir. By the way, your mention of Raven brought up a question that's been tickling the back of my mind since I first saw her in the stands. And that is? The train started with a jolt, and the two braves were on their way. Did you call her a raccoon? D.G. had to think about it for a second, and then a hoarse laugh erupted from him that surprised them both. Oh, son, I, I didn't know you heard me. I don't remember saying it out loud, but yeah, I used to call Raven my little coon. Jason didn't say anything, but there was a quietly pleading sort of look in his eyes that asked to hear more. T.G. figured if the kid was going to reach for the moon, at least his manager could try to build him a ladder. He started telling Jason about Raven, at least the Raven he had once known. She used to hang out watching the practices all day long, and one day when she was maybe nine, starting to think about boys and being a lady and all, never forget. Gary Steinbauer. You never met him, but he was a great pitcher, one of the best. He told Raven that if she held this empty milk bottle up to her eye and looked through the bottom, the sun would turn blue. So she tries it, and complains that it isn't working. And Gary says, try the other eye, and she does, and it still isn't working. She gives him back the bottle and walks away, and for almost three hours, has no idea why everybody's chuckling around her. See, Gary had put some soot around the rim of the bottle, and boy, was she mad when she finally saw the circles around her eyes. D.G. was wiping tears away from his own eyes, laughing at the memory. And for ages I called her my little coon, and it used to get her so worked up. The following Monday, Jason was walking quickly down the main corridor of the stadium, heading for the exit, needing to get onto the bus that was ready to cart all of the Braves to the train that would in turn get the team to New York. Kip had shown up, everybody was there and all waiting for him, since he had picked up his uniform but forgotten the bag with his street clothes back in the locker room. As late as he was, however, when her green eyes and that chestnut hair caught at the edge of his view, Jason turned and skidded to a stop. Raven was just leaving her father's office, and for a long moment, both regarded one another silently. Jason realized that she owned at least two outfits. The gray dress he had seen twice had been replaced by a dark navy skirt and a green blouse that matched her eyes. The chestnut locks were held back in a ponytail that the young man found achingly cute. They both spoke at once. My father asked me to find his... I have to get to the bus! And then silence again, though Jason laughed at himself, and even Raven found herself smiling without thinking about it, her fortress unguarded for a brief moment. He saw the smile and did not waste the opportunity, losing no time being nervous. You look real nice. Suddenly blushing and self-conscious, she looked down at the dress she was wearing and stammered, I I felt like wearing nice. I mean, something pretty. You succeeded. She looked up again, still a bit flushed. "'Thank you. Now or never. "'Raven, we're on the way to New York, but by Thursday I'm back in town. "'No time for a deep breath. Just do it. May I call on you, then?' "'She looked a little startled, then a little scared, "'and then, to his dismay, the mask came back down. "'The fortress guard was on duty once more. "'Yet her answer surprised him. "'Yes.' "'He was late and getting later, but held her gaze for another long moment "'until her expression softened just a bit.' almost imperceptibly, if she waved in the general direction of the bus. You'd better go. Right. It was as good as he was going to get, Jason felt certain, but also considered himself lucky. He remembered the bus full of players who were waiting impatiently for him, said, sorry to rush off, but I'll see you, and turned to go. He was surprised again when she called after him. Jason? Yeah? Yes? Her eyes met his once again. I'm looking forward to Thursday. Jason's grin carried him all the way to the bus. Once the train was underway, Phil Bryce stopped by his manager's room to check the postings for who would be sharing what berth. His own placement with Ted Conroy in the rear of the train, over the wheels, was completely expected by the rookie, but Jason Stiller... In his infinite wisdom, Robert Germain had assigned Jason Stiller to share the best berth on the train with Bud Triplehorn. His eyes wide and his mind spinning with the confrontation that was sure to come as soon as Bud read the manifest, Phil moved fast through the chatting and card-playing braves, hoping to find his Fred before Bud did. You don't have any professional experience? Jason leaned back in the seat and sighed, feeling the vibrations. The berth he was in was next to Conroy and Bryce's, and they'd been right. The ones over the wheels were terrible. I've heard that question before. Come on, I'm not complaining, Kip wheedled. I'm just trying to understand. It's a great mystery to everybody. To me too, Kip. No, to answer your question, I never played anywhere professionally before my first game with the Boston Braves. Kip sat back in his own seat, pushing the hair out of his freckled face. Just those garbage games? Garage and watch it. Could always go find a real writer. Ah! Kip made like Jason had shot him through the heart. He fell back against the seat, his eyes shut but he was still a reporter. Tell me about those games before my death, huh? Laughing as well as shaking his head, Jason looked out the window and thought about it. The garage games were just extensions of neighborhood ball, I guess. Somebody had a little extra money and nothing better to do, and found enough of us guys to form two teams and we'd play. The only real differences between any game in a vacant lot and a garage league was that there was enough money for extra baseballs and extra light, the occasional night game, and steady fans. Tell the truth, Kip, I couldn't wait to get out of there. Baseball is baseball, and a hit off of Larry Bruce and the Knicks feels just as good as a hit off Andy Sweeney back in Gillick Grove. But then you had 20 people watching. Now I've got thousands. Maybe it shouldn't make as much of a difference as it does, but still. A lot more people think I'm something special. He looked away from the swooping telephone lines and back at his friend. A lot more people like me? Kip was nodding. I can understand that. <laughs> I used to write from a high school newspaper. Uh-huh. Well, everything else he planned to say was abruptly swallowed as Phil Bryce burst in the door. Jason! Alarmed by the look in his fellow rookie's face, Jason jumped to his feet and Kip was right beside him. What's going on? It's about the burst. Uh, Bud Triple Horn, Robert Germain! You gotta leave or run or something! Jason understood, and immediately his shoulders relaxed. Is that all? But, Phil, where would I run to on a train? Thanks for being worried. I appreciate it. But it won't be a problem. Francis Bud Triplehorn apparently thought it was a problem, as suddenly he burst onto the scene, banging the door against the wall and pushing past Bryce without a thought until he had backed the star hater against a corner, and all Jason's perception was a thick finger pointed at his nose and very dark and angry eyes behind that. I've had enough of you, boy! This has gone far enough! Jason didn't move, but tried to calm the furious man down with a quiet word. Bud? I'm telling you right here and now, there is no room on this team for fat-headed, no-nothing, freeloaded, gold-digging mama's boys, and there was no way in Hades you were sleeping anywhere near the middle of this train car tonight, you hear me? If the reference to his mother, or any of the other insults, hurt Jason's feelings, he didn't show it. But he tried again quietly. Not even in the aisle, not even on the roof, I will throw you right off of this train before I see you sitting nice and pretty in a bunk reserved for a real team member. You've proven you can hit a ball or two, but by God, you're still a rookie boy, you hear me? You waltz around here acting like the greatest thing since Cherry Fizz, and I'm sick of it. I was fighting Japs when you were in middle school, kid, and whether or not anybody ever told you to respect your elders, you're going to pay attention now, and you will get rookie treatment just like the others, or so help me, I'll thrash you good. I have had enough! Bud, another try, just as quietly. Triple Horn looked like he was casting about for more insults and decided to let the kid speak just to have something to work with. What? Calmly, Jason continued. I agree with you. Say what, boy? The eyes were still angry, but the pointing finger had been recalled. You're absolutely right. I've been given favors I haven't earned, and I haven't been acting the way I'm supposed to. I'm sorry. I saw the list on Mr. Muldowney's door, and I don't know why Mr. Germain put us together, but it wasn't right, so I asked our manager if I could switch with Bill Pickens. I'm sleeping back here with Kip, and Pickens is in with you. Bud Triplehorn had been brought up short, but with such humble words had nothing to rail against. You're in here? Yes, sir. Pickens is in with me? Yes, sir. The big pitcher didn't look too excited at the switch, but he couldn't really complain about not getting what he was after. Well, he seemed at a loss for words. Fine, then. Watch yourself, kid. Keep your nose clean and stay out of my way. The big man turned and left, much more subdued than when he had entered. Jason let out the breath he had been holding and sat back down. Phil looked amazed. I guess you had things under control after all. Soft answers turn away wrath and all that. Kip laughed, letting his own tension go. I didn't figure you for a biblical scholar. Does that mean you're a God-fearing man, Jason, as well as a wise one? The kid closed his eyes and ran a hand through his hair. God and I have an understanding. He left it at that. Since the crisis had been diverted, but his friend still looked a little worn out by it, Kip turned to Phil Bryce and asked him a few questions just to pass the time, in case the rookie centerfielder had some good stuff for his newspaper. Jason found himself left alone and enjoyed the few moments of peace. Idly watching out the window, his eyes following the lines between telephone poles as they swooped up and down, up and down again, there were two sentences that alternately ran through his head. Neither was from Bud Triplehorn given a year or three. I don't know, but you might end up being the greatest baseball player of all time. I'm looking forward to Thursday. Jason Stiller's eyes drifted with telephone wires, but his mind saw a packed stadium with thousands and thousands of cheering fans, heard the distinctive crack of a wooden bat belting the stuffing out of a white horsehide ball, and saw himself rounding third base, trotting towards home, no hurry about it, looking straight into the deepest green eyes he had ever seen eyes watching adoringly from the first row. Chapter 5 Boston Tribune Column copy, K.G. Editor-in-Chief, R.Y. The Look of a Legend by Kip Gumbo You wouldn't think much of Jason Stiller upon first glance. At not quite twenty-one years old, Jason looks like a quiet, well-raised young man, a shining example of good schooling and country living not a legend, though. Except when you realize that Jason Stiller, aka The Kid, has claimed the most home runs so far this baseball season. When you factor in the batting average that started off high and keeps climbing. When you go out and just take a look at The Kid in action. Ah, oh, he doesn't look like much in the dugout. He doesn't even look like much walking up to the plate. There's no bulging muscles, no six-foot stance. Stiller stands five foot ten if you measure generous. But when he sets that slugger on his shoulder and looks down the alley, and you see it, not that you can define it, not that there's any discernible difference between Jason Stiller and whoever batted before him, whoever will bat after him, but he's just got something. A confidence, a joyful life in baseball and the challenge. He's got something unpinnable that makes it easy to start telling stories, to start spreading the legend. Then the real magic happens when the ball shoots towards him and he don't think he's even noticed, but his eyes never waver and that bat just floats off his shoulder like it wasn't moving and suddenly the ball is bouncing around in the back bleachers and he's trotting around to bases like he was just out for a walk in the spring air. The man looks young, and some claim he doesn't belong, but try to take him away from the Braves and see how far you get. He belongs. He belongs in that batter's box more than most of us belong in our own jobs. We chose our fields. Jason Stiller was born to his. Catch a game in which he's involved, and see if I'm telling lies. And by the way, his current batting average is a record for a rookie. 368 and still going up. (laughs) Not that anybody's counting. End. The limousine deposited Raven outside a nice Italian restaurant on Boston's east side. He had let her pick, freely admitting that even after two months, he didn't know the lay of the land. If Robert Germain were lurking in the limo somewheres, Jason didn't see him. And he was pleasantly surprised when Raven walked up to him by herself, with no butlers or manservants keeping an eye on her. "'Sure we don't need to wait for your chaperone?' He smiled, so she knew he was joking. She knew. "'Apparently my father trusts you.' The thin brow over her beautiful right eye arched upwards, and Jason understood that the lady herself did not trust him quite as far. Yep. But when he offered his arm... She took it, and they walked in together. The title, Jermaine, had provided quick reservations in a very nice table with a view of whatever river the restaurant fronted. Jason wanted very much to make a joke about rich people, but decided wisely that maybe it was time to be a little more serious. You look beautiful. This was no joke. Raven had taken his offer of dinner with some gravity, attired as she was in a quiet but very pleasant beige dress with lace and a matching handbag, set off very interestingly by a green ribbon in her hair, which, of course, mirrored her striking eyes. When she had first stepped out of the limousine, Jason's breath had caught, and for a wild moment, even though he recognized her immediately, he couldn't believe she was there to see him. He assumed that women liked to be told they were beautiful, and was a bit surprised at the way his comment was received. Look, Raven folded her hands on the table, not angry, but very serious, If I had a dollar for every time some guy had informed me of my beauty, I might just be worth more than my father. Your comment is duly noted and appreciated, but if we're just here so you can tell me how beautiful I am, this is a waste of time. She waited for his answer, at once glad to have stood up for herself, and also terrified, deep inside, that she was going to mess up and drive him away. Raven had deliberately started off strong for that very purpose. Might as well send him packing sooner, rather than later, if he wanted out. Jason just smiled. Okay. I'll never mention it again. Thank you. Suddenly self-conscious, Raven wondered if he had been telling the truth, wondered if she really were pretty. And as long as she was thinking about it, he didn't look too bad himself. It was embarrassing to be polite and say it, though, after her tirade. You, she coughed daintily, you look, um, very handsome yourself. Waiting for the response she deserved, Raven was surprised when he simply said, "'Thank you,' and smiled with a twinkle in his eyes. "'Was that how one was supposed to take a compliment?' "'Seemed a little more polite and less harsh "'than the way some people did it,' the young lady realized, "'and blushing slightly, felt led to say so. "'I think your response was better.' "'His smile became a grin. Oh, I do too.' "'Waiter popped up then with menus and pad, "'taking drink orders. "'She asked for tea and didn't miss that her friend?' date? Escort for the evening, stuck with water. You didn't have any liquor the other night, either. Does that mean you don't drink much? Uh, Not at all, really. He couldn't help noticing that her mask was clamped down tight, and the guards seemed to be doubly posted, the wall between them thicker than ever. But at least she had shown up. You? Not really. I never cared for the taste of the stuff. She looked down. I've always been terrified of getting drunk. I hate the thought of losing control like that. A moment of silence. Then, as if she had revealed part of herself and had to cover for it, she changed the subject. Is Italian food all right? I didn't know what you wanted, but I've always been fond of it, and I thought that you at least wouldn't mind. The hand that he was holding up stalled her, and she just blinked at him for a second or two, before he said quietly, Italian is fine. Are you that nervous around me? Raven closed her eyes sighed, and then looked down at her hands that were twisting a napkin around and around. She spoke just as quietly. "Uh, "'I've thought about this... date for the past three days, and was really looking forward to spending time with you. But it's been so long since I've done anything like this. I'm afraid. Afraid I'm going to get it wrong.' She scowled, so that she would not cry. When he reached across the table, he moved so very carefully and gently... "'that she let him take one of her hands and one of his. "'His fingernails were clean. "'She almost laughed, the things one noticed. "'Raven?' "'She looked up and saw those eyes again. "'Just a simple brown, but so deep, so open, so honest. "'She couldn't meet them and had to look away, "'but when she had marshaled the strength to look back a moment later, "'he was still there. "'I like Italian food, especially a good pizza pie, "'and before you start, I know they don't serve pizza here, "'and it doesn't matter.' While I'm at it, I also like baseball, and riding a bicycle sometimes, and stargazing, and then a bit of a smile tugged at his face. And I will even admit that I like action comics, though that's a bit childish and you might think less of me. She couldn't look away from him, and felt suddenly like she could just look into his eyes forever. I like you as well, Miss Germaine. I don't know who you've been hanging around, but I'm not the sort to turn and run if you make a mistake or two. Or three. Then Jason stopped speaking letting her talk if she would. Raven twisted and thought and then spoke without looking up. I like roses and collectible dolls and sunsets and the tiniest beginning of a smile quirked somehow onto her face and pistachio ice cream. He was smiling and still waiting and though she had a most terrifying moment at the very thought Raven realized that she had a friend someone she could be herself with someone she could trust. Raven Germain closed her eyes and took a deep breath and put the mask away. Jason nearly fell out of his chair. The young lady who looked at him then was no one he'd seen before. The same gal, perhaps. Her eyes hadn't changed color, but her entire face had softened, taking on what had to be, yes, was a pleasant expression. A little sad, still, but not harsh or uninviting. Somehow she had decided to let herself be herself, And he saw who she really was, deep inside. And just as suddenly, Jason Stiller understood that he was deeply in love. He was wise enough, though, to keep this to himself. Pistachio ice cream? The slight smile tugged a bit wider. Yeah. Problems? Not if I don't have to eat any. Her nose wrinkled just a bit, and he found it adorable. So we don't have much in common, huh? Again, Jason was wise enough to not say it aloud... But he knew then and there that he would most certainly find something they had in common, even if it meant taking up collecting collectible dolls. I don't know. We'll have to work on it. "'I used to like baseball,' she said, as sort of a peace offering, suddenly a little concerned that they really might not have anything in common, and hoping that wouldn't prove true. Mm, "'Yeah, Mr. Muldowney was telling me a little about you when you were young.' She felt her eyebrows go up all on their own. "'Oh, really?' Yeah, something about a milk bottle? That was all he offered, making her figure out what... And then she did remember an incident that was over a decade old that she hadn't thought about for a long time. And when she did think about it, a real, honest laugh bubbled out of her. And that hadn't happened in even a longer time, so she enjoyed herself. And about the time the laugh was finished, she thought of the story again, just to laugh a little longer. He waited, smiling. When she had laughed all the laugh there was to that story and had wiped her eyes with the kerchief he had offered and given it back to him, she met those brown eyes again and said, Thank you. Thank you, Raven. That's the most beautiful laugh I've heard in a very long time. It... And he stopped, and Raven recognized the sudden fear and sorrow on his face, but for some reason he finished his sentence. It reminded me somehow of my mother. A quiet silence. Raven looked at Jason... She now giving him time to decide whether or not to be himself when he nodded and sighed, she knew he had it wasn't fair, but she didn't want to start things. You first, Jason closed his eyes, wondering if the story still hurt like it had the last time he had told it. He had done such a good job of putting things away, taking all of the awful feelings and thoughts, and just making them disappear. But they always came back, and at the oddest times, Jason figured that unless he could find a world where nobody talked of mothers ever again, those feelings were his forever. He decided that, hurt or not, he would rather tell her than not tell her, and opened his eyes. Okay. It doesn't take a lot of time to tell, really. Not long after I turned 11, back in 38, there was an outbreak of smallpox all over the Midwest. It hit Gillett Grove just as much as everywhere else. My mother was the only one in our family who got the disease. A low question from the other side of the table. Didn't they have the vaccine by then? Some places, yeah. New York, Boston, Denver. Not Gillet Grove. Not Gillet Grove. The worst thing, and he took a deep breath and kept going. The worst thing was that she didn't have to get anything. She didn't have to contract any disease. They warned us about it, told us it was coming and what precautions could be taken but my mother and his voice cracked and she said nothing and he went on when he could she had to go out and help people she had to keep tending the sick that she knew and comforting the families who had lost somebody and then then our family had lost somebody through everything that had come to pass he was still holding her hand and now she held back I couldn't even see her They took her away and told Dad I had to stay home, and by the time he returned, I never said goodbye. He looked at the ceiling, blinked a few times, not ashamed of a tear or two, perhaps, but having no desire to weep in front of anyone. That's about it. She didn't know what to say until realizing that it was her turn. She couldn't very well open up his wound and shelter her own. Raven was saved, for the moment, by the arrival of food. And a few minutes passed with the rituals of salt-shaking and water-glass arranging and complimenting each other on their choices. Then their eyes met again, and Raven remembered her debt. She picked at her fish for another moment, trying to think of how to begin. I had a school project that was coming due. Uh, Middle school, she explained unnecessarily. It was a science project, and I had been so busy with my friends looking at the new spring dresses in the shop windows, whispering about some boy or other, that I had let the project go. Till the last minute, of course, the night before it was due, I realized that I'm not finished. The thirteen-year-old girl behind Raven's eyes still felt so very guilty. Father and I had a dreadful argument about it. He thought that since I didn't get the work done, that I should just have to go to school empty-handed and take my punishment. I yelled at him for not caring about me, and then burst into tears, which was how I always got my mother to help me out. And she said, like I knew she would, that she would go get the supplies I needed, help me finish. Made me promise that it wouldn't happen again, and then off she went in Father Studebaker. We didn't have any limousines back then. Money was a little tighter. The salmon was excellent, but still seemed to get stuck halfway down, and it took extra effort to clear her throat. I never broke my promise, at least. It never happened again. She blinked and blinked and couldn't make the tears go back where they had come from. Raven, please, just let them come. She scowled at him. You didn't cry. Maybe I didn't need to. Maybe I don't even know how. If you can, do, okay? She didn't know what that meant, but in the end, it seemed to be okay if she cried, so she did, not really caring if her fish got all wet the fish knew how to be wet so she went into town and I shut myself in my room trying to get everything done and so angry at my father for not understanding and she didn't come back and didn't come back and I started getting upset with her for making me stay up late the sheer selfishness of it angered her but she squeezed her eyes tighter shut sighed felt another set of tears roll off her eyelids and kept going and she didn't come back The police knocked on the door around 11, and my father went out to talk to them, and they talked for a long time. When he came back, he said that Mommy had been in the drugstore getting my things when a man came in with a gun. He was yelling things nobody could understand, and as everyone on the sidewalk dove to get out of the way, he killed the store owner, killed my mother, killed somebody's child who was standing by the candy rack, and then killed himself. It was one of the most awful things Jason had ever heard, and he gripped her hand tightly. And so she was just dead. I never said goodbye, or even knew why it had to happen. Just that it was my fault. How can you say that? Jason, no, Raven, I'm sorry that it happened, and you have every right to hurt because of it, but how in the world can you call it your fault? The young lady he loved hissed at him, because she wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for me. She wouldn't have left. She wouldn't have been at the store, she wouldn't have died. It looked like she was about to really break down, and Jason cared about her. Knew she wouldn't want to do so in public. He pulled gently on the hand he was still holding. Come here. Not far from their table was an open doorway leading to a balcony that overlooked the river, and Jason found it mercifully empty as well as dimly lit. Ball players or owner's daughters, small towns, big cities, friendship or love, none of that really mattered as Raven turned to Jason sank deeply into the strength and acceptance of his arms folded strong about her, and wept bitterly, trying not to be consumed by the hurt and the guilt and the pain. Jason tried his best just to hold her, just to be there for her, and not think of how wonderful she smelled, of how the skin of his neck was tingling from the warm breath of her sobs. When she had finished crying, he knew it would be proper to let her go, and against his wishes, he did so. Raven stepped away a pace or two, grateful to again take his handkerchief. I'm sorry. So am I. He stepped closer to her, and she let him take her hand, just so they could each know the other was there, as both looked across the river at the lights beyond, and knew only their own thoughts for a time. Until Raven quietly invaded the heavy silence. How did you get past it all? Without conscious thought, his grip on her hand tightened just a bit. You could start by realizing that it wasn't your fault. I mean, your dad could have gone after your school things, too. Maybe he should have, but you don't blame him, right? Er, don't I? Drifted away on the breeze. Raymond waited, certain that now there would be even more remonstrations, arguments about how she shouldn't hate her father any more than she should blame herself but the words she expected didn't appear. When she finally looked up Adam, the moonlight has caught up his eyes in a soft shine. You have to live your life, Raven. I could talk for hours about how it's not your fault and about how she won't come back no matter how much you might wish for it, and that the best thing you can do is be good to you, love yourself, try to be happy. But you're smart enough to figure that out on your own. That's up to you. But as far as this goes... His left hand, the one not holding on to hers, came up to ever so gently brush her cheek and she realized that he was trembling. If it pleases, you may tell me anything you wish. Ask of my time however you'd like. Whatever can be done, I'll do it, if you ask. Raven Germain looked at the handsome, earnest young man standing so close by her and felt it could be nothing but a dream. He squeezed her hand once more and let go, and she remembered walking back inside, and paying for their meal, and parting at the front of the restaurant, but Raven was caught up in the possibilities of the dream, and the quiet denial available thereby. She entertained feelings for and about Jason Stiller, and pushed feelings about her mother, and her father, far away, one more time. Jake Beershap, the legendary pitcher, had been giving the kid a hard afternoon. Not that Jason hid everything that came at him, but as he went up to bat for the sixth time, he knew without a doubt that it was his worst game yet. He had to show this guy up. He had to be the best, because if he wasn't the best, then what was he? Anything? Hey, kid, you want to get your heads out of the cloud and play baseball? Huh? Oh, yeah, uh, watch me. The last thing he needed was some no-name catcher getting on his case. The kid stepped into the box and faced his enemy down. Beershed's fastball was a fair match for Bud Triplehorn's, but has already been discovered and shared over and over since the kid became big in papers and radio news across America, the story getting larger with every telling. Jason Stiller knew how to hit a fastball. He hit this one. The very ball itself, Kip would later write, seemed to be screaming in pain as it arced out of the stadium. According to the reports of the people watching from outside, that ball never did come down. It ain't a change of subject, fellow baseball enthusiasts, to mention that there are more than a few people wondering if Jason Stiller might end up being the greatest baseball player of all time. Huh, not that anyone wants to disparage Hank Aaron, or Babe Ruth, or Jason's fellow man over at the Red Sox, Ted Williams, but hey, Mr. Williams, you got heavy competition. The Braves still, however, lost by two runs, though with one-third of the season behind them, they were the top contenders in the already heated pennant race. There was not one person on the team that would deny that their success was largely owed to one heavy-hitting rookie. Surprisingly, however, there were differing opinions as to whether or not Jason Stiller's contribution was beneficial. Over one of their weekend card games, in the growing heat of early June, Dutch and Pickens and Lefty sat and listened as Bud Triplehorn said the same things he had been saying for three months. All three noted that he got a little louder and a little nastier every time. I just can't believe it. You read the papers this week? Yes, Bud. Dutch tried to keep a neutral tone, hoping it might calm down the star pitcher. His hope was in vain. These wet-eared kids are all alike, and now our snot-nosed golden boy has a big fan and fellow snot nose on the Tribune. Have you seen it? Yes, Bud. His kip fellow, the one with the soup for the last name. Don't try to tell me there ain't something wrong with that. Bud interrupted himself, fuming. This squirt keeps writing up our wonderful save-the-day rookie like he's Babe Ruth reincarnate. Uh, Pickens wondered, isn't Bay Roof still alive? Dutch muttered quickly, shut up, Pickens. He tossed two of his cards down and waited for Lefty to deal more. Somehow, Bud steamrolled over the comments without stopping. And we'd all just better bow down before him and declare him God just because he can hit a dad-blamed fastball. Like, hitters are all that important anyway. Everybody knows it's a pitcher that'll pull your tush out of the fire, for sure. Call him. While they figured out who had won the hand, each of the other three players at the table had their own private... Differing opinions as to which position on the team was especially important, but each was also wise enough to keep silent about it. That old rube is the worst thing that ever happened to the Braves, and by God, if I knew how to get rid of him, I'd do it. Worst thing is, it was my easy pitches during that 5 of 7 fiasco that let him in the door. If I'd really leaned on him from the beginning... Bud looked at his cards and decided they wouldn't get any better, tossing them onto the table. We wouldn't have this problem. Of the three other men at the table, Herbert Dutch Katan was the closest to Francis Triplehorn as far as friendship went. They had shared dinners with wives and fishing trips with each other and just common enough dreams for quite a few years. Despite this, or perhaps because of it, Dutch gauged his words carefully. You know, bud, I'm right with you when you say that Jason Stiller's a little too big for his breeches. He's never really acted like the rookie he's supposed to be. I don't truck with having reporters follow rookies around come to think of it, I've been a card-carrying member of this team for a lot of years, and not once has any reporter wanted to tell the world my life story. Another hand passed by. Bud didn't say anything. Lefty and Bill didn't think Dutch was finished, and so there was a short silence. Dutch coughed. And I also agree that pitchers have their place, and maybe the public doesn't pay the guys on the mound enough attention. Maybe they don't pay enough attention to third baseman or second baseman or shortstops, either. Bill Pickens and Lefty respectively grunted and quietly nodded their agreement. But there's another side to this that maybe you haven't fully thought through. Another silence fell over the group, but this time it was much less peaceful. Finally, Bud, aloud, in a low voice, And what would that be? Dutch looked across the table and met his friend's eyes. Maybe he ain't the quiet, no-name rookie that he should be, but the kid doesn't seem to be out for glory, neither. He ain't hogging any spotlights. He's not out there for money or power or anything. He loves to play baseball, and darned if he isn't really amazing behind the plate. Whether or not you like him, and at this point Dutch looked at his cards again and upped the ante by a quarter. You have to admit, his abilities are something else. Maybe legendary. And all the kids trying to do is play baseball, which is all we're supposed to be doing, right? But I want to win the pennant this year. I really don't have a big problem admitting that I have World Series dreams. Every May and October, I wake up nights in the middle of catching the final out in the bottom of the ninth, end of the seventh game, and it hurts a little inside, because I've never been there. We've all come a lot closer than the barbers and cab drivers of America, but I, for one, still haven't been there. Again, his eyes met Bud's, and they were pleading a little. I want to be there, Bud. The kid. I think we can make it with him around. Francis Triplehorn understood exactly what Dutch was saying, what he was feeling. He had known such dreams himself, once. But just getting to the series wouldn't be enough. Even winning it wouldn't be enough, not if all the headlines and radio announcers were raving over some punk-faced, snot-nosed puke from beyond the middle of nowhere. Not if someone else got his glory. As usual, Bill Pickens spoke without thinking, at the worst possible time. After all, bud, we can't rely just on your fastballs anymore, can we? In unison, both Dutch and Lefty turned to their teammate, yelling, Shut up, Pickens! But the words could not be taken back. Silently, Bud sat in his chair and regarded the Braves' shortstop. Bill, for once, had regretted his words even as they left his mouth, and regretted them even more as he watched Bud turn several different shades of red without moving. Oh, uh, Bud, I was just kidding! Even this fable attempt faded into the growing silence. Finally, Bud sighed and pushed his chair back. You're right, Bill. As always, you know how to get right to the root of a problem. I think it's past my bedtime, boys. My wife will be wandering after me. With that, he stood up, tossing the cards he was still holding down onto the table. It was the winning hand, but the star pitcher of the Braves made no move to pick up his money. With a smile and a wave, he started to walk out of the clubhouse. But as he passed right behind Bill Pickens' chair, the burly pitcher clamped a meaty hand onto one of the back rungs and yanked it straight out from under his teammate. And as Pickens fell, his chin banged hard against the tabletop, his teeth clacking together loud and painfully, and then the smaller man fell backwards to the floor. Bud glared at Lefty and Dutch, daring them to say anything. Both looked away. Bill didn't seem to have anything more to say either. Only Bud had a last comment. "'Gotta be more careful, Pickens!' Wouldn't want to bite your tongue. Then he disappeared, leaving behind three old friends that didn't know what to think or say. Not long after that conversation, Jason Stiller opened his locker. Just a few short minutes before an important doubleheader against the Dodgers to find a surprise waiting. All of his uniforms were tied in thick knots, as well as being soaking wet. D.G. walked up to find the kid angrily beating his fist against the locker door. Problem, Jason? Problem, Jason? Do you see this? Dennis took a good look and couldn't help a quick bit of laughter. Well, it's about time somebody hates you, rookie. Jason said nothing, but his scowl was answering up. Come on, kid. Just means everybody ain't walking on pins and needles around you anymore. You're part of the team now. It actually didn't seem like that to the Braves' manager. This prank, coming suddenly when it did, almost halfway through the season, felt weird somehow. But it happened to every new player and was probably nothing. Get over it, huh? There was still fire in Jason's eyes. I already was a part of the team, and what happens to the team if I can't play today because of this, huh? For crying out loud, Stiller, you walk on water or something? Like the Braves can't struggle along without you if they had to? Even as he spoke, D.G. considered just how right Jason was, which was something he could and would not tell him. Golly gee, Mr. Stiller, I sure hope you don't get sick or anything. We might have to forfeit the rest of the season. Dennis looked his player in the eye but could not read the young man's expression. He decided it wouldn't hurt to wheedle a bit. Every good manager was both father and mother, after all. Come on, kid. I'll bet Bryce has a uniform that'll fit you. Think of how confused everybody'll be with two number 24s out on the field, huh? You can get that Kip fellow to make it into another grand story about your tolerance and love of the game and everything. Just means they like you, kid. He clapped the young man on the shoulder. Let's pull it together. Jason's expression had softened a bit. Okay. Okay. DG saw to it that Jason would be able to play clothed, and though Bryce was a bit shorter than the kid, and obviously had the name Bryce, had not Stiller on the back of his jersey, they made it work. Dennis went out to the dugout and watched his players play, reflecting for a while that afternoon on the many jobs of a baseball manager. Not only father and mother, but friend, nurse, referee, counselor, judge, taskmaster, boss, and the dispenser of barley candies, on occasion whatever it took to keep the team together. He decided to have the boys assemble after the games and put Jason's wardrobe back in order together, a sort of group project, and figured that would probably settle things. All that day, through both games, Jason felt humiliated, and though he refused to let it affect his performance, he came out of the second win more tired and strung out than ever before. He didn't agree with his manager that it was a harmless prank, and that whoever had done it, had done it for fun. And he also had a pretty darn good idea who the guilty culprit was, but said nothing to anyone. Well, well, some intrigue amidst the Boston Braves. I wonder what could be happening. You know what Lincoln said, a house divided against itself does not play good baseball. Thank you for joining me on yet another podcast, and uh, I hope that it has been An enjoyable experience, if nothing else, as uh, one of the parishioners of Waterstone told me afterwards, I have a fantastic voice, apparently easy to listen to, and I share that voice with you for whatever it's worth. Meanwhile, please, I'm begging you, own your stage, whatever stage that happens to be, and uh, come on back in a couple weeks.